Welcome to Fire Away, Rudner Law's online show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Stuart Rudner. I'm an employment lawyer and mediator and your host of this season four, episode five of Fire Away. Just a reminder that Fire Away streams online every month. And if you miss an episode or want to watch one again, they're always available on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, LinkedIn, and on our firm website. If you are watching live and you have a question, we'd be happy to address it. So feel free to post comments on either Facebook or YouTube or tweet to at Rudner Law. I'm very excited to be joined by two great guests today. So first of all, from Recruit King, I've got Mike Kings. Mike, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Uh, thank you for, again for joining me. It should be a great discussion. And I've also got Mark Belesh from torontojobs.ca. Mark, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Stuart. It should be a great discussion. We're talking all about recruiting or headhunting, as it's often referred to. And I have to admit, this morning I, I did a, a Google search on the term headhunting, and what I found was that headhunting is a specialist recruitment service which takes the chance out of candidate attraction. Rather than hoping for the right candidate to come along, headhunters actively seek out the right people for your business. Now, that sounds very much like an ad, but I think you get the point. Uh, but it's interesting how some people cringe at the thought and feel like they're almost doing something, you know, unlawful or, or unethical by approaching people and offering them employment as opposed to waiting for applications. So we can talk about that as, and we will talk about that as we go through the discussion today. We'll talk about some of the best practices, uh, how things have changed during the pandemic, uh, and what considerations there are as we're hopefully starting the, uh, the return to normal at this point. Uh, and as usual, I'll, I'll chime in with some, some legal considerations, but we want to get the, um, the benefit of, of Mark and Mike's experience. So, Mike, I'll, I'll start with you, and let's just start with a general explanation, because I think there are some misconceptions out there. W what is head headhunting? When you talk about headhunting, what are you referring to? Yeah, no, great question, because it is confusing for a lot of people. So headhunting is really determining a client or company's specific talent requirements then using research to find those desired people, and then using persuasion to engage them to introduce them to your clients. I think it's sort of important to remember that 75% of the workforce are what's called passive candidates. And those are candidates that are not looking for jobs. So they're not on job boards, they're you know, locked into their mandate, and they're not looking for other work. So you really need a headhunter to tap into that 75% or, or at least it's in your best interest to be tapping into that 75% that's not looking for a job. Okay, that's really helpful, Mike. And maybe I'll, I'll flip over to you, Mark. And, and next question I was gonna ask is, is when should businesses be looking to headhunting as opposed to just the traditional posting jobs? Well, I think it generally, if, if I had to pick one aspect, because there's lots of considerations like budget and so on and so forth, but uh, I'd probably say if, um, if, if the role itself is, has a high supply of people that are in the market looking, you can do a job posting. So for example, if you know there's a lot of uh, administrative assistants or HR people or, or accountants that fit what you're looking for available in the market, a posting probably could be the answer. But if it's a more difficult search where you know maybe the demand is higher, uh, the type of people are not actively in the market, like my, what Mike just said, then uh, uh, getting using a recruiter, a headhunter uh, to help uh, reinforce the search, and maybe you can do them at the same time, do a posting and, and a search. But generally speaking, if it's a low supply, high demand, 
type of role or you know the candidates aren't actively responding to job postings then that would be a, the right time to engage a recruiter yeah I mean, it's interesting i mean our firm we've been public about this we've been looking to hire a paralegal recently so if there are any paralegals watching that have employment law experience please contact me uh, but we've had a heck of a time finding anyone and we started with the passive posting we're now trying to be a bit more aggressive and and, and find people and recruit them um, but do you see that often that employers are doing both that they're posting but also headhunting yeah and I, I mean i we you know we have our our job board as well so we will uh many times be working with a client they'll have posted a job and they're using our recruitment side as well at the same time to uh, actively have us recruit for someone as well so uh, to, again, to Mike's point, you get the you get the best of both worlds when you're doing a posting and uh, putting it out there uh, through a recruiter. But the other thing too is when you post it, at least you can share that link uh, through your social media or through your newsletters and so on and so forth, as opposed to just purely relying on a recruiter to help uh, find a, a candidate for you. So you know when you have that link, it, it's open for for a lot of uses uh, as well. And I would really also just quickly suggest. On the posting, so a lot of people just think of a posting as here's a job description and that's it. Well, in today's world, you can use a lot more tools and social media and YouTube videos and things like that to complement your search and make it a little bit more uh, more colorful, more uh, visually attractive, so to speak. And that's a great idea because obviously you are you are selling. Um, and, and Mike, this should have occurred to me, so I'm going to put you on the spot here because um, I know we didn't really talk about this before. Do you have any idea, like roughly what? proportion of jobs are filled through headhunting as opposed to posting? It's extremely low. It's less than 5%. I think it was usually around 3%. So uh, it really gives you an idea there. Uh, networking is still your, your best uh, route to find, try to find a new location. Yeah. And from an employer perspective, are you, um, I mean, is it really only for the sort of the management and above that you would recommend headhunting or not necessarily? No, not necessarily at all. It really is uh, that it's, it's the niche need. So we're seeing it across the board, especially with technology. Now we're seeing people that are looking for very specific skill sets that uh, that can help a company. So, yeah, it's across the board uh, in terms of that nicheness. Interesting. And, and Mark, I know you work with a lot with entrepreneurs and, and you've got you do a, a ton of online webinars and I've been you know, happy to participate in a few of them. And we've got one coming up in a few weeks. Uh, but I think you, you spent a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs. Like, do you find that many of them are actively headhunting or is it still fairly rare? I think a lot of the ones who are, are really um, thinking ahead are always looking for people. And uh, I think we have we have some clients that are always standing orders to say to uh, say to us, Mark, if you find someone like this, regardless of whether we're staying in touch or not staying in touch, let us know. And uh, we're always looking for these type of people. It could be salespeople, it could be customer service, could be um, you know hard to find roles. We we do a lot of work with public accounting firms, for example. So uh, we have a lot of clients who just say, you know, we're, we're always looking for this kind of person. So if you come across these kind of these types of people, but yeah, I, I would say as a, uh, for entrepreneurs, you're always trying to make your business better, and uh, staffing is almost always the number one issue in many respects. Uh, can't find the right people, 
uh, not sure how to find them, uh, what to do, and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, you should always keep uh, your you should always keep your recruiter friends uh, warm and and close to you, and, and keep them in the loop as to what you're doing. Which I guess is a nice way of you telling me that I should have let you know we're looking for a paralegal. So. <laughs> for sure, <laughs> we'll talk about that separately. Happy to help. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, Mike. Um, how do you respond to those people who, who do cringe when they hear about headhunting and think that somehow it's uh, it's not the right thing or not an appropriate thing to do? Uh, from the candidate side, you mean? Uh, or well, just generally, I, I've I've seen it where people are they get that hesitancy or that that deer in the headlights look in their eyes when I suggest that they you know try to recruit someone. Or I, I mean, I had a discussion once, uh, probably about six months ago, with a client, and they were complaining about how. Basically, their their sales teams were getting destroyed by their competitors' sales teams, and I said, you know, one option is, is you know, not quite if you can't beat them to join them, but if you can't beat them, then recruit them. Um, so you could consider poaching some of those great sales guys, and and I office, I obviously you know recommended that they protect themselves with a good contract, and we'll talk to, talk about that at some point. But a lot of people are just you know, horrified by the idea that you would actually contact someone unsolicited and offer them employment. Yeah, well, re reality is it's it's too competitive of a space right now. So you can't just rely on on, on what what comes in your door, or what knocks on your door. You know, I for companies that that might struggle with the concept of hiring a headhunter, you really have to really focus in on the talent that you're getting. And the more information that you give a headhunter like me, the more I can help you. So if I understand not only your requirements for this role, but the succession planning that you have planned for this role and the other skills that you need this person to move into, you know, engage me because I'm, I'm out there looking for it anyway. So I can really precisely find what they're looking for now, but also five years from now. And it's much more valuable than even flipping that role down the road. So there's a lot of value that comes, but sometimes, you know, it might be an HR department's more focused on cost and their budget for recruiting. But again, you've got to think more strategically than that and really look at the long-term picture. Makes sense. And I guess on that front, and I don't want to, you don't need to get into specifics, but how, how does cost work when you're talking about going out and recruiting someone? Yeah, it depends on, on, on the position, but it's, uh, it's usually a percentage of the total salary for the first year. Uh, you know, usually comes in my case, it's a one year guarantee as well. Uh, and there's also testing and onboarding that's done as well. So it's depending on the complexity of the search, that's, it's usually a percentage and then th that's it for the, for the, uh, uh, for the contract. Got it. So maybe, uh, I'll flip back over to you, Mark, uh, in terms of best practices or do's and don'ts when, in terms of recruiting, what, uh, what, what can you recommend to people? Okay, so uh, job seeker side or employer side? Uh, well, I'll let you choose. On both sides? Okay. Well, um, well, first of all, I, I want to also mention, I mean, you're, you're referring to the kind of the, the industry as uh, headhunters. Uh, you know, it kind of sometimes implies the headhunters are, uh, the name is a bit barbaric in a way, but uh, uh, nonetheless, um, you know, there's there's other terminology that the industry might use for recruiting firms. So you have recruiting firms, headhunters, uh, staffing firms, uh, professional staffing services, things like that, uh, or might be different things. But um, you know, to answer your question, uh, on, you know, some of the some of the dues for employers uh, is to um, really be honest with the recruiter 
and um, let them know exactly what this what, what the best parts are and what the not so good parts are about uh, the search. Uh, why the last person left? What were the reasons why? Uh, what are the reasons? Maybe somebody would want to work there. Maybe somebody doesn't want to work there. Um, sometimes also having expectations that are way above what a recruiting firm can do. Uh, I've had some companies, they have a, a team of four or five uh, recruiters on in their, within their company. Uh, they're using all the tools uh, available to find candidates. And, you know, plus say, you know, 2000 employees that they have internal referral bonuses to uh, if uh, they refer somebody and then uh, they can't find somebody through all those tools. And then they go to a recruiter with the expectation that they're going to find the silver bullet for them. So you, you got to kind of somewhat manage uh, the uh, what, what your expectations are of a recruiter, perhaps. And uh, also, you know, like I said, be honest and be, be transparent and, and, and stay in communication with them. Consider the recruiter as part of your organization and there to help you. Uh, on the um, on the candidate side, I think uh, kind of same thing. If you're a job seeker and you're watching, kind of same thing. I would say, uh, understand your expectations. I, I talked to some people who they think that because they're going, they're coming to see me or going to a recruiter, that it's a guaranteed placement that they will they will 100% find a position through that recruiter, and it's just not the case. Uh, in the uh, um, statistics that Mike said that you know, a very small percentage of jobs get filled through recruiters. Well, similarly, if you uh, visit a recruiting firm, I think the stats in the past were out of out of 10, uh, this is years ago, but out of, out of, and it probably still applies today, but out of 10 candidates that a recruiter might interview, only one of those will actually find a job through the recruiter. So again, uh, being aware of that 90% chance that you're not going to find a job through that recruiter, really important to know. Right. And uh, again, being honest, from the job seekers perspective, being honest with the recruiter about what you're looking for, what other opportunities you might have, what you don't want, and just being transparent. Uh, sometimes people mislead the recruiter. Sometimes they're not uh, upfront with their work experience or they're a little bit uh, trying to sugarcoat it, make it seem it's better mm -hmm. than they are. Recruiters can see through that and smell through that. And, and uh, so just, really as a job seeker, really be, be honest and, and transparent with the recruiter. Makes sense. Mike, anything you want to add to that? Yeah. On the client side, I would add another do as well. And uh, it's something that's a bit of an issue for a lot of companies right now that have their own talent acquisition departments. So these are teams within a company that are supposed to be making outbound calls as a, as a headhunter would. Um, but, you know, the research shows that very few of them are actually making outboard bound calls because they might have too many searches on the go and they're relying on job postings too much. So often senior executives will assume that, you know, that, that the best talent is being targeted, but it, it actually isn't. So uh, a quick little check would be to make sure that any senior executive that's meeting any new hire potential candidate during the interview process ask them how they found out about the position. And if they say job posting, then obviously there's a disconnect there and you really wanna make sure that you're tightening that because some of these companies are paying, you know, good money to have their own internal recruitment headhunters, but they're actually not headhunting. So that would be one sort of, just sort of audit check you could do. And then to Mark's point about communication, you know, the, the person there is, is there to help you. And uh, the more information that you give them, the better the headhunter can do their job. 
and really that will sort of improve cycle time, improve quality results, and really reduce the amount of time that there's an empty chair in the uh, in the organization. So again, trust the headhunter and uh, and they, they will deliver for you. Makes sense. Thanks, Mike. And so let, let's sort of forward to the next phase. So you've now, as a headhunter, you've identified a few really good candidates. Uh, how do you go about actually, I'm curious to know how you go about actually approaching them and how do you convince them? If it wasn't someone who put their name in already uh, that was looking, how do you go about convincing them to leave that job that they maybe, maybe they've been there for five, 10, 20 years? You know, how do you convince them to, uh, to leave and go somewhere else? Uh, Mark, why don't we start with, with you this time? Yeah, well, generally speaking, uh, um, you know, they'll express some kind of interest uh, of some kind. Now, if they're uh, what we call passive candidates, so not actively searching candidates, so active candidates, they're actively searching for a position, they have their resume uh, posted out there and they're applying to jobs versus passive candidates who are, uh, you know, they're kind of out there, they're interested if somebody approaches them, but they're not, they don't have their resume really ready. The passive candidates on the recruiting front are, are generally uh, the ones that are more difficult to reach and, and uh, trying to pull them in to, to talk to them about an opportunity. But we would uh, approach them, I would call a, a candidate and I would say, you know, we've got this position, we've got this opportunity, would you know somebody? So it's a, a, more, a, a softer approach. So would you know somebody that might be interested in this role? they say, ah, don't really, what about you? Would you be interested? Is this something that you would want? If not, what would you want? And I, I find that there's always some kind of hook of some kind that they would be open to hearing about. It could be uh, maybe something closer to home aside from the pandemic. If they're already working from home, that doesn't make a difference as, as much. Uh, perhaps it's a career growth. It could be money. It could be that they're just looking for a change. So I'm looking for that door to open to say, what, what can I hook this person with? What is it that would make this person express some interest? And even if it's not a perfect job, maybe it's close enough that they would have at least a conversation. So I would have a, a, a softer approach in that case and just say, hey, I, you know, I, I wanted to see if this might be of interest to you. Uh, you know, it may not be exactly what you're looking for, but it doesn't hurt to have a, a conversation. It could be a Zoom or a phone call, and and take it from there. Fair enough. Um, and so, Mike, let's say we're, we're talking about a passive candidate. If they just say, "Thanks, but I'm not interested," do you do you pursue it beyond that, or is that really the end of the conversation? Yeah, no. You want to you want to extend that conversation. Um, so I, I I'm a firm believer in the Stephen Covey method. So win win. You want to make sure that it's a win win arrangement for both the candidate and the client, and that really comes with a really firm understanding of the opportunity and the client. You really have to know the client well. You need to spend a lot of time uh, debriefing prior to even starting the search. And then you also have to understand what the candidate is trying to achieve. Now, you might have, may have limited information on that candidate. It might be just uh, a LinkedIn profile. It could be your past notes from your, uh, uh, you know, someone that you interviewed five years ago. Uh, but it's using, you know, instinct and intuition to try to understand what they're trying to achieve and then marrying up the two uh, for the good of, uh, of the win-win. And, you know, something you can do is that I only do is I, I never arm twist. So if, if it's not a fit for, for the, the candidate, you move on and you try to get 
uh, a referral, as sort of as Mark was saying there, where, you know, who might you know that could be appropriate for this role, given that you know a little bit more about what I'm looking for. And that that will really spur on some, some additional uh, leads for you as well. Well, that makes sense. And, um, and Mark sort of alluded to this a little bit with the, the remote, remote work option during the pandemic. But uh, Mike, have you seen any other ways that the pandemic has changed your recruiting process? Yeah, we're, that's that's obviously the hot one, and it's it's going to remain hot until September when some of these companies identify what their strategies are for work from home. Um, but what we're seeing a lot is that people that have been furloughed in 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 the past and the over the COVID period. Uh, that means some people in the organization are doing double duty, so doing two roles at once. Uh, they might be exhausted, and if you're a top performer, you, you're only going to put up with that for so long. Um, and then and then you're going to make a move uh, elsewhere. So it's just about that person getting the confidence to, to make a move and then they're ready to go. But it's usually someone that's been overworked or, you know, if you're not going to the office, and that was a big part of the culture. You know, some people do want to go into the office and uh, that that's a play, too. Right. If you've got a really fun office environment, which some of my clients have, but, it, you know, it, they're not going into the office anymore. That sort of loses some of its luster. Fair enough. And Mark, is there anything else that you've seen that's changed during the pandemic? Well, you know, the, the hook of uh, getting people to uh, work from home uh, or at least find them a job that's closer to home is, is has evaporated. You have 5 million Canadians who are now uh, working at home. So where we used to have, especially in the Toronto area, where we used to have somebody who's uh, had a, a one hour commute one way or uh, one way and you know there and then back uh, two hours each day spending in uh, traveling uh, that is gone now for five million Canadians so the that that hook has gone uh, the hook of um, you know maybe more money has also been less important during the pandemic because you've got a situation where people can't uh, spend uh, more than they're getting they can't go on more vacations they can't that fancy car that maybe they eyed is not as attractive anymore because they're sitting that would be sitting in the driveway and not being used to spend those uh, two hours a day in uh, in commuting time. So, uh, so, so those those kind of hooks are are a little bit gone in terms of hooking a candidate, getting somebody interested in in a position. So, um, so we have to, you know, be a little bit more creative uh, and working with the clients to understand what can what 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 can be more attractive about working for their company as opposed to where they are right now? Uh, maybe it's a culture. I mean, I've, I'm getting uh, interesting enough, uh, more candidates kind of coming towards me saying, you know, I think it's time for a change. We've been through a lot with the pandemic, but I just kind of want to put my feelers out there to see what's out there. Uh, if there's uh, an opportunity to work from home and somebody's being brought in to work at the office or, or they're going to be recalled, then that's also going to be an opportunity for us as recruiters to to get uh, some candidates. And I would encourage uh, candidates, job seekers who are thinking about making that move. And and there, there's no, you, you can't start early enough when you're thinking about making a change. You should talk to people. You should understand what the market is. You should uh, speak with recruiters who specialize in your area. And that's where you get a, a good idea as to what the market is. And from there, you can formulate a plan because it, finding a new job can sometimes take more than more time than you think. And you want to make that move, but it can't come soon enough sometimes. So, so reach out to a recruiter that you know or trust and uh, focus on, uh, on your search. Understand what you're looking for. 
Yeah, and you made an interesting point about a lot of people that have you know chosen to move further away from wherever they were before, and and if they are recalled to the workplace, they all of a sudden may be looking for a new job. So there may be a, an increase. So I, I, I'm mindful. It's already twelve fifty four. Time goes by, as I said in our pre show discussions, goes by really quick. But I, I know one of the things we mentioned be, that we wanted to talk about was diversity and, and inclusivity issues that arise in the headhunting worlds. Uh, I don't know, Mike, if you want to go ahead or go first and talk about some of those. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, certainly been an issue that, that's uh, been paramount the last, I would say, year and a half and started with really trying to get more females at the board level and uh, then, you know, increasing female numbers within organization then is, is moved into uh, visible minorities and Black Lives Matter. So there's a lot of different moving components here. Um, and so it's great that, you know, some of this is getting traction. I think we're still not close to where we are or where we need to be. You know, it's it's about trying to identify skill sets within those different areas that still meet company requirements. That is, you know, certainly an issue for a lot of companies. Sometimes they want to increase their diversity, but they just aren't, you uh, uh, aren't able to because uh, of certain standards required in the marketplace. So that's certainly one thing we want to see is maybe more training, getting involved with uh, certain areas to try to ramp some of those areas up. And then, you know, if it comes down to, uh, you know, different areas of, you know, how, how the legalities of, you know, identifying, you know, what you want to do with, with a hire, uh, that's always sort of the gray area too, right? So a lot of clients will say, I want a woman for this position and, and you know, no problem there. But, you know, how far do you have that sort of discussion when you start looking and in, breaking down into uh, visible minorities? And, you know, is that even ethical at that point? So there's lots of things that need to happen. And, um, but, you know, we, we got to make sure that we're doing it the right way. Fair enough. Mark, did you want to add to that? Well, I think the smaller the business, the uh, less uh, there is in terms of, um, uh, you know, kind of protocols and, and standards and so on. The larger the business, the more there is, uh, you, uh, you know, resume masking where you don't even see the person's uh, name or, or background or anything like that. You just see uh, their skills. So you're really just applying based on skills. Uh, the, again, the larger the company, uh, the more uh, diverse uh, protocols there are, uh, how many people they want to hire for, for uh, diversity. But, um, but I, I, you know, I've been in the recruiting business for a long time. So uh, for me, I just present them candidates uh, to clients that have what they're looking for. And, you know, whether there are some uh, obvious discriminatory things or not, it's up to really the company to make those decisions and to hire who they want. I mean, we can take them so far, but, and sometimes they don't know what the issues are or what they can or can't ask. And sometimes I've had to tell candidates or uh, clients, look, you can't ask that question. <laughs> it's just, you know, we hear it from a client. Uh, don't ask that, <laughs> you know, it's not appropriate age, sex, religion, whatever, like just stay away from those questions. Yeah, we have those conversations all the time as well. And it's amazing how uh, even just innocent chatter, the problem is can, can lead to some of those issues. So it's uh, definitely a challenge. Um, I mean, you know, I, I had one recently where it was just, you know, someone was interviewed on Monday morning and they were asking, you know, how was your weekend? And the answer was, oh, I, I was at, I think it was, I was at church and then I took my kids to hockey and they didn't get the job. And all of a sudden there were allegations of, well, you know, maybe it's because they knew I had young children. Maybe it's because they knew my religion. And, yeah, so even if you're not asking about it, sometimes these things come up. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, I'll ask one more question and I, we should wrap up. Um, 
typically you mentioned the masking how prevalent is it that you're presenting candidates and masking the, you know, the factors that would relate to proper diversity and inclusion? Um, we, we don't like when we present a resume, we, we put the, the name, we, we take out the addresses, uh, you know, the address even has become a, a huge issue where it's, uh, you know, where someone lives could be construed as discriminatory. So we, we've taken the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, address a uh, person's address off the plate right off the bat. Um, but as far as other uh, areas, I haven't really seen it. I've heard that there are a, a number of companies that are using that masking process when they, uh, when the HR or recruitment department within the organization finds someone and then they present it to the hiring manager. They don't, they'll take off the names and they'll take off any uh, information about them. They'll just focus purely on the uh, person's experience, title, background, and that's it. So, uh, but I haven't personally seen it and we as recruiters, I, I don't, I don't know about Mike, but uh, uh, we don't, we don't, we'll, we won't mask anything else. We'll just continue to, to uh, have the uh, person's uh, name on there and, and their whatever else they put on their resume. Yeah, I, I've never, I've never used either Stuart. You know, I, I put the best candidate forward and um, you know, they give me this, they give me the requirements they're looking for and, and I find that for them. and. You know, hopefully there's diversity and I try to do it if I, if I can, but uh, at the end of the day, I've, I've got to check all the boxes that the client gives me. Fair enough. All right, well, listen, I will uh, wrap it up now for our discussion, but Mike and Mark, thank you guys so much for joining me today. It was a really, really interesting and as I expected it would be. So I really appreciate both of you guys taking the time. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for having us, Stuart. Thanks, Mike. Right, and now I, I get, uh, now I get my turn to fire away. So, so for my rant this time, really the title could be the title almost every single month, which is please stop making assumptions. And season five, sorry, season four, episode five of Fire Away, we talked about recruiting or headhunting, the idea of luring someone away from their current job to join a new company. And this is a perfect example of where one common assumption completely fails. The assumption being that short service employees always get minimal severance, if anything. And you'll probably be surprised to learn that there are many cases where the severance entitlement actually exceeds the length of service. And one memorable case from a few years ago now from the British Columbia Court of Appeal, somebody worked for six months, was let go, got nine months of severance. So how does that happen? As I think regular viewers will know, if you're talking about the common law obligation to provide reasonable notice, there are no hard and fast rules. There's a whole bunch of factors that you have to assess. We know the key ones are often length of service, age, the nature of their position. But another important one is often whether they were induced to leave previous secure employment. So imagine a 55-year-old member of senior management. They had a job for 25 years at a company. They're now lured away to join a new company and they'll let go six or seven months later. They're not just going to get two weeks or a month of severance. They are going to get probably a year or a year and a half of severance because that previous secure employment they had is going to be factored in. And even if it's a younger worker who is you know, recruited away from a five-year job, uh, their notice entitlement is not going to be based solely upon their time at the current employer. A court's going to consider that, assuming that they were induced to leave prior employment. It doesn't matter, or it does matter, I should say, in, in season four, episode five, we talked about passive versus active candidates. If they were actively looking for work, 
they can't say, well, I never would have left until they came and convinced me to. But if they were genuinely passive and not looking at all, and they were effectively lured away, then this is going to be a huge factor. And contrary to popular belief, the factor is not only a short-term thing. In the Wallace case, which many of us know for bad faith damages, um, the fact that Mr. Wallace had been lured away from a job 14 years earlier was still a factor in his severance entitlement. So even 14 years after he was lured away, he was let go, and that served to increase his notice entitlement. So the point here is if you were let go, and even though you didn't have a whole lot of seniority, uh, don't assume that you don't have much in the way of a severance entitlement, especially if you're, you were lured away from a previous job. Um, and if you're an employer, don't assume that just because somebody hasn't been with you for very long, that it's going to be uh, an inexpensive termination if you choose to let them go, because either way, that's going to be a pretty expensive lesson. If you're an employee and you're being recruited away from long-term or, or even mid-medium-term employment, if you're being asked to sign a contract, check the termination clause very carefully. Uh, and in fact, what we often do for our clients is we'll negotiate a base to their severance. So if you're being lured away from a 12-year job, your termination clause should say you'll get at least, for example, six months of severance, and then it can escalate as your service increases. So it shouldn't be minimal. It should actually be in, in increasing. Uh, but it's starting off at a base to reflect the fact that you are leaving a secure job. Uh, of course, and I have to say this because regular viewers will hopefully be thinking this already, none of this matters if you have an employment contract with a termination clause. Then the whole issue of inducement, of reasonable notice is out the window. It's whatever you negotiate. So whichever side you're on, you want to make sure you protect yourself. Um, and at the end of the day, and I'll say it, say it as I often do, it's a mistake to make assumptions about employment law. It's You're going to be much better off getting proper advice from an employment lawyer before you make a decision. And it'll cost you a lot less to avoid the problem than it will to fix it later on. So that's all I have for this month. Just please stop making those assumptions. That's all the time we have for season four, episode five of Fire Away. So I want to thank you all for joining in. And in particular, thank Mike and Mark for joining me this month for a great discussion. Reminder that at Rudner Law, we want people to treat their employment relationships as legal relationships and make informed decisions rather than making an assumption. I invite you to keep up to date on employment law matters by subscribing to our newsletter, following our social media. And although we're making progress on the COVID front, keep up to, keep up to date on workplace issues that are COVID related, particularly in the post lockdown phase by checking out our COVID-19 resource page on our website. But as I always say, none of that replaces legal advice tailored to your specific circumstances. If you think that you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So feel free to reach out to us. Our next episode will be on July 20th, and the Rudner Law team will be looking at Ontario's reopening plan and talking about what employers and employees need to know as we move forward, such as can you insist that employees return to the workplace? What if they've shown that they can work effectively from home? Can you require that employees be vaccinated? Can you require that new hires be, be vaccinated? If you have any questions in advance, feel free to either post them on our social media channels or email them to info at rudnerlaw.ca and we'd be happy to address them during the next show. And again, past episodes can be found on YouTube and on our website and on Facebook. And if you like them uh, or subscribe, then you'll get notifications of, of new shows as they go live. Thank you, as always, to Rob, to Rebecca, and to Mark for helping to put the show together. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next time.